This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And then as soon as I take my foot off the snake, then he's completely free. And so I had to dance. I danced. And he coiled up and he was still uh, rattling, but I danced away. And it could be the dance that um, concerned him the most. <laughs> well, That's it concerned like, the rest of us. Wasn't, we're not really sure what what this animal is. And I'm just going to just watch it for a minute to see if it stops its dancing. Right. <laughs> we were all hoping for that, too. Yeah. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today is our monthly mailbag episode where we answer questions from listeners about a wide variety of things, including public lands, hiking trails, road trips, camping, gear, and other travel-related topics. On this episode, we'll give our opinion about whether to visit Shenandoah or Olympic National Park if you only have a weekend. And we'll share some ideas about things to do during those couple of days. And switching gears to Big Bend National Park in Texas, we'll answer a question about whether or not to bring snake gaiters for your kids to wear while hiking. Plus some thoughts about which NPS site might become our nation's next national park and our favorite national park entrance signs. All this and more coming up next. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. We've got a lot of interesting questions today, don't we? We do. And we always have a lot of great, interesting questions, but I think these are particularly good, if I do say so myself. Do you have all of our answers all ready to go? (laughs) Well, no, because even though I might have my answers kind of thought out, we need to hear your answers, which are usually different from my answers. (laughs) I like to be surprised. (laughs) I know you do. (laughs) I don't like to prepare too much for the mailbag episodes. I I just want the thoughts to hit me. (laughs) And then three months later... When we listen to it again, we realize that I, I said something stupid or, or incorrect, but that's fine. That's how we roll here. <laughs> most, by episode 106, most people know not to take my advice right. <laughs> and, and to take your advice. So it, it's working like a charm so far. Yeah, yeah, good. All right, we can get into our questions, but first we want to thank all of our patrons over on Patreon. We started our Patreon account back in September, and we're very appreciative to all of you who've signed up. We try to post at least twice a month bonus content. I think we have, guys, I think we have 15 pieces of content, so either a bonus episode or a video, something like that. That's right. And if you don't know what we're talking about, you can join our Patreon account for $5 a month. It's very easy to sign up. And then you will have access to all of this content that we've already posted. Like you said, there are videos and some audio. And you will also help support our podcast financially so that we can continue to bring that wonderful history channel <laughs> and all of this advice on mailbag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so thank you for everyone who's joined so far. And if you're interested, go over to patreon.com. We'll also put a link to our Patreon page itself in the show notes of this episode. Right. And again, thanks to all of you who have already uh, joined and support us. All right. Should we get started? Yeah. What's our first question? Okay, this one comes from Lisa in Fort Collins, Colorado, and she wrote, My sister and I want to go somewhere the third weekend in May this year, and we can't decide between Olympic National Park or Shenandoah National Park. We will have two to three days to spend in the park. Do you have any advice about which one we should choose? Also, any hiking recommendations? Okay, great question. Those are two very different parks, two opposite ends of the country. Um, I guess you're in Fort Collins, so you're about halfway between both. 
You know, I think if you only have two or three days, Shenandoah might be a better choice because, I mean, Olympic, there is just so much to do in Olympic. I think it would take more than two or three days. Yeah, I agree. And the thing about Olympic is, if you haven't been there yet, it's very spread out and there is a lot of driving from area to area. Um, so many diverse places in Olympic, like you've got the rainforest and you've got the ocean beaches and waterfalls and, and Hurricane Ridge. So if you're going to really see Olympic, you need more time. Uh, just to compare, Olympic has almost a million acres and Shenandoah has 200,000 acres. So Shenandoah is about a fifth the size and I think easier to see in a weekend. Right. And in May, the mountainous areas of Olympic are probably not accessible because there's still going to be snow. Right. And that's a good point. And we haven't been to Shenandoah in May. We have been twice, and both of those times were in October. But I would imagine the springtime is absolutely beautiful. Yes. So that would be our suggestion. But Karen, if she goes, Mm -hmm. then do you have specific suggestions as to what she should do? Yes, I jotted down a few here. One of the best things to do in Shenandoah is to drive that beautiful skyline drive. Now, it runs down the backbone of the park along the crest of the Blue Ridge Mountains for a hundred and five miles. Yeah. And note to self, the speed limit is uh, about 35 miles an hour. It's going to take three hours to do the whole drive. Yes, it would take about three hours if you don't stop. But we would encourage you to stop because there are a lot of overlooks along Skyline Drive on both the east side and the west side with some incredible views. So you'll want to, you know, pull over, stop, get out and probably take some photos. And there's a lot of hikes in the park. I mean, there's long ones, there's short ones, some are hard, some are easy. Uh, And we have a recommendation for a few. Yeah, I I jotted a few down. But again, talk to the rangers. Uh, There are visitor centers throughout the park. There are several of them. Talk to the rangers and you can find out specifically what would appeal to you. But I think my favorite is that Dark Hollow Falls that we did, Matt. That's right. We did that. We parked at the Big Meadows Lodge parking lot. There's a little visitor center there and a store. It's not right at the lodge. It's kind of right off the parkway. And we walked from there kind of across the highway to the trailhead. Right. So you can do that. You can walk from Big Meadows Lodge, or I think there is another parking area that's slightly closer. But the entire hike is fairly short. It's just 1.4 miles round trip. Um, And the thing is, is you hike down, down, down to this beautiful waterfall. And just remember then, of course, you have to hike back up. (laughs) Yeah. And if you're in that area, you definitely want to check out Big Meadows Lodge. I love that lodge. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful national park lodge. Mm-hmm. Makes you feel like you're in a national park. If you could stay there, Lisa, that would be ideal. I don't know if they are already sold out for May. I'm not going to do a history channel for Shenandoah because we have to Thank keep you. this moving. <laughs> but I just have to say that Big Meadows Lodge was built in 1939 with stone that they cut from a local mountain. And this is what's cool. The entire interior structure of the lodge, including this beautiful paneling that you'll see, is made from native chestnut trees, which I didn't know. But today are virtually extinct. Yeah, because they cut them all down to do the panel for the lodge. Matt, that is not the reason. That's not the reason? That's not the reason. I guess the American chestnut trees died from a fungal blight between 1904 and 1940. But the good news is, currently, there's a small army of biologists, ecologists, foresters, and activists who are dedicated to bringing back the chestnut tree. And they're trying different methods of genetic engineering to grow a blight-resistant tree. So anyway, uh, Big Meadows Lodge is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And one more note about the lodge. There's a restaurant there. You can get what is kind of the signature dessert of Shenandoah, which is their blackberry ice cream pie. Don't miss that. And it's also available at the restaurant at Skyland. Okay, that did feel a little bit like I know, a history lesson. <laughs> All right, a couple more hikes. So Stony Man is a very popular hike. It's the second highest peak in Shenandoah at about 4,040 feet. This is another short hike. It's 1.6 miles round trip, and it only has about 340 feet of elevation gain. So it's a very easy summit hike, and it's very popular for people of all ages. And another one you can do is Hawksbill Mountain, which is 
nine feet higher. <laughs> it's actually the highest peak, and you can do the Hawksbill Loop Trail, which is about 2.9 miles, 860 feet elevation gain, great views. Uh, that's going to be harder. Longer trail, more elevation gain. Right. Now, if you want the hardest hike in the park, and maybe the most popular, that would be Old Rag. On this hike, um, you ascend to the base of Old Rag through the forest. It's fairly moderate up to that point. But then to reach the summit, you climb up and over a lot of really big boulders. So if you like rock scrambling, uh, this is the hike for you. It's challenging, fun, and maybe the best part of the hike. And when you get to the top, there are some, again, incredible views of the park. Yeah, this is a more strenuous hike. 9.4 miles round trip, 2,400 feet elevation gain. Uh, usually takes people five to seven hours. So just know that, that that's an all-day thing to do and pretty strenuous. And it requires a permit. Well, maybe. You're the per- <laughs> you're the permit desk. So the deal with the permit on that, the parking permit, is last year, from March through November, the park had a pilot program where hikers had to buy a day-use ticket for Old Rag ahead of time. During this program, they have gathered information and data, and they're going to be evaluating this over the next couple months. And they said they'll share information early 2023 about whether they're going to do this ticketing system again. There isn't anything on the website yet about it, but if you want to do Old Rag, make sure you check the website. See if you have to get an advance ticket um, to do this hike. Check their website because... Most of the stuff we tell you changes by the time you're going to actually do this the thing. Or by the time the podcast episode comes out. <laughs> by the time we're done recording, it's obsolete. it will change. All right. Yeah. One more hike we wanted to talk about that we really enjoyed was Rapidan Camp. Rapidan Camp. Yeah. We didn't understand when we hiked it that uh, we were hiking to the Brown House. Had no idea what the Brown House was. <laughs> Turns out that it was the summer retreat for President Herbert Hoover. So he was the 31st president, and he uh, loved that area, and he went there for the summer. And it was the last presidential summer camp before they built Camp David. Now the presidential summer residence is uh, Camp David, but Hoover liked Rapidan Camp, and he named the little cabin that he stayed in, the brown house, because he already had a white house, (laughs) and this was his brown house. So a little bit of History Channel there. Um, If the History Channel people are listening, I can do some of the history narration also. That was pretty good, Matt. Just letting people know. (laughs) That was pretty good. When we did this hike, there was a ranger there doing a tour. And so (laughs) we went in and did the tour and the ranger asked us, now, why do you think they call this the brown house? (laughs) And we just looked at him with like blank faces, uh, because it's brown. (laughs) None of us knew. Like we were, yeah. yeah, We failed that one. But anyway, Hoover was there during the Great Depression from 1929 to 1932. He loved to go fishing on the Rapidan River there. And at the end of his term, he donated this 164-acre retreat to the National Park Service so they could incorporate it into the soon-to-be Shenandoah National Park. And a note about those ranger tours, I think they canceled them during COVID. And I think the info on the website is vague. It says uh, rangers offer tours of Brown House seasonally. So Lisa, when you're there in May, just ask the rangers at the visitor center if there's going to be a tour because it was really interesting. Yeah, I like the tour. It's it's fun to be able to go in there and kind of imagine what, you know, the president of the United States, where, where they stayed, you know, during these summer weeks. But if for some reason the tours aren't running, it's still worth doing the hike and going down there. It is. And now it's about a four-mile round-trip hike. It was moderate and about 187 feet of elevation gain. So that's a good one. Now, the other thing you can do is the Appalachian Trail runs through Shenandoah National Park There are 101 miles of the trail. And generally speaking, the Appalachian Trail follows pretty close to Skyline Drive. So you can pull off in a lot of areas and hike the trail. I like doing that, not not because the trail is necessarily challenging or anything like that. And you already have great views just from the road itself and the pull-off. So you're not doing it necessarily for better views. But I think it's just fun to be on the same trail 
that a lot of these people are hiking when they're doing the entire AT, right? You, for a few miles, you can imagine what it would be like if you're going to do this for 2,000 plus miles. And you'll see some of the unique trail markers at the trailheads and trail intersections. They're these cement posts with metal bands on them that will show you what trail you're on, uh, what other trails converge at that intersection, and the mileages to other points of interest. Also, there are the initials AT in black that's stamped on them to identify the Appalachian Trail. And there's also blazes painted on the trees along the trails in the park to help hikers from getting lost, right? Uh, there's There are these rectangle painted little patches. The white ones are for the Appalachian Trail. The blue ones are just a regular hiking trail. And then there's yellow ones that uh, designate that horses can use those. Right. I guess that's something that you'd want to know before you, a before horse Before you comes, bring your horse out. Or before you're surprised by a horse. <laughs> anyway, Lisa, we hope you have a wonderful weekend, a lot to do in Shenandoah for, you know, two to three days. So I think that would be an amazing choice. That's right. Okay. What is our next question, Karen? All right, I, I added this next question because it kind of speaks to the same thing that Lisa's question did. So this is from Becky in Plano, Texas, and she wrote, we will be flying to Seattle this summer in mid-July to board an Alaskan cruise, and we'll be adding in two extra days to hike in one of the Washington National Parks. Would you suggest Olympic, Mount Rainier, or North Cascades? Hmm, yeah. The challenge with the national parks in and around the Seattle metropolitan area is there's a lot of driving. It's it's kind of tough to get into them, and it's kind of hard to do anything in, in a couple of days. I think of those parks, probably Mount Rainier would be the, your best bet if you only have a couple days. Sure. You know, we oftentimes will drive into Mount Rainier from our house, and we are north of Seattle, and we'll just drive in for the day, do an amazing hike, and drive home. So it's very doable. Whereas Olympic and North Cascades, we would never drive in and drive home in a day. It's just too far. So I think uh, Mount Rainier National Park is definitely your best bet. Okay, so if they're going to spend just a couple days doing Mount Rainier, what would the plan be, Karen? Well, we'll mention a few of our favorite hikes first. If you can do these, these are epic hikes. Now, there are different regions of the park. When you look at a map, you can you can see these regions. One of our favorites is Sunrise, the Sunrise area. And the road up to Sunrise typically opens around July 1st or 2nd every summer. Right. So Sunrise is in the north part of the park. Uh, the road goes all the way up to a visitor center there, huge parking lot. And it's pretty much above treeline. There's some trees, but you have fantastic views of the mountain. And the hike that we like to do is the Fremont Lookout Tower. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic hike. There's also that same trail that leads out towards the Fremont Lookout Tower uh, you could also take another fork of that trail and do the Burroughs Mountain Trail. And that's an amazing trail. The views, I mean, Mount Rainier is in your face. <laughs> right. On either of those trails, mm-hmm. you're going to have like front on views of Mount Rainier. The views aren't better on one of those trails than the other. They're, they're fantastic on both. Another incredible area of the park is the Paradise area, and there's a reason they call this Paradise. You know, we've talked before about the Skyline Loop Trail, which is fantastic, but, you know, up at Paradise, there are all kinds of trails, and there are waterfalls to go look at, and there is a lot to do up in that area. Right. It's a little different feel because it's a little lower in elevation, so you get a little bit more up and down and some trees. Still rocky. Good chance you'll see marmots up there, and that's a beautiful area. Yeah, Paradise is on the south side of the mountain. And towards the west is the Mowich Lake area, and there are two great hikes that we've done there. There are more than two, but we've only done two. There's uh, Tolmy Peak Fire Lookout and Spray Park. Yeah, and both of those are fantastic, and those those are very much treed. 
trails. So you can't go wrong with all three of these. I would say if it was your first time there and you're only staying for a couple of days, I would try Sunrise or Paradise. Now, a couple of things to note. First of all, on that Mowich Lake, the road out there is a dirt road. It's a little rough and it can be under snow well into July. So if you want to go out to that area, look on the website, make sure the road is open. And the other thing too, since we touched on the road situation, last summer they were doing a big road construction project in the middle of the park and so from Mondays through Thursdays you could not get from the sunrise area to the paradise area because the road was closed now I don't know if that's going to continue this summer or if they finish that project but again as you're planning out what you're going to do in these two days make sure make sure you look at the website uh, the park website and see what roads are open Right. The other thing to consider if you're going there and um, you're thinking about maybe spending the night, there's really nowhere on the sunrise side to spend the night. There's no lodging. There are a couple of lodging options if you do the Paradise route. Uh, The Paradise Inn is right there at the parking lot, um, and it's usually sold out months in advance, but you could try to get cancellations. Mm -hmm. And we've done that several times. Also down at the like the bottom of the road that, that goes up to Paradise in the Longmire area is the National Park Inn, and it's another historic lodge, uh, and you could also do that, try to get a cancellation there. Yeah, that's a really cute place as well. Two other options to the south of the park. There is the little town of Ashford and the little town of Packwood, and those have lodging options that you could check out too. And one more note, uh, Mount Rainier National Park in the summer gets very crowded. The lines to get in are forever. So go really early. Right. Yeah. 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 Anyway, Becky, I hope you have an amazing time in Seattle and in Mount Rainier National Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, Karen, time for our next question. Okay, this one comes from Tom in Greensboro, North Carolina, and he wrote, Dear Matt and Karen, my family wants to start camping, and so I'm buying various things when I find them on sale. When it comes to sleeping comfort, would you recommend a blow-up air mattress or cots? Our kids are 10 and 12 years old and will be traveling to parks around the eastern side of the country in our suburban. Okay, well, first of all, Tom asked about which one is better for sleeping comfort, and of course, that depends on a lot of factors. Uh, What kind of air mattress you're going to buy, what kind of cot you're going to buy, you sleep on your back or your side or stomach, all all those things uh, affect whether or not you're going to be more comfortable with one or the other. We've used cots before and uh, we happen to get a, a very comfortable set of cots and they worked for us. And we've also used air mattresses. So we, we can't really tell you which one's going to be more comfortable for you, but we can tell you a few things to consider. Right. So we started camping at about the same time we started backpack camping. And so we bought those um, inflatable sleeping pads at REI, the pads that are just for one person to sleep on. And then for a year or two, we also used those sleeping pads in our tent when we car camped in established campgrounds. And I have to say, we struggled a little bit with those uh, sleeping pads. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the big issues was uh, they make a lot of noise. They're they're scratchy or crunchy. Um, <laughs> I roll around a lot. Yes, you do. <laughs> when I uh, sleep and they just, uh, I, I don't know, they 
they make a kind of a loud sound and we've tried several different brands and can't find one that's uh, quite, we found one, a Nemo pad that was a little bit more quiet. The other thing you have to be concerned about is uh, if they puncture on you, then you're out of luck. And we've, we have had that happen. We did. I think one of the first ones I had that I actually liked, it, there was a tear next to the valve where you blow it up. The seam kind of just ripped open and there was no way to patch it. And so basically we had to throw it out. And, you know, that was an expensive pad. I think we spent well over $100 for that. So that is another thing to think about. Yeah, but then we bought cots for our big tent, the tent we use when we car camp, where, you know, the park, the car's parked right next to the campsite, and that was a game changer. That really improved the comfort and the camping experience. I love our cots. Now, first of all, they magically appear in your tent. So I would be yeah. reading by yeah. the campfire, and then I'd go into our tent to get my slippers, and there they were, all set up with blankets and pillows on them. Right. I, I got the <laughs> brand that magically sets themselves up. <laughs> um, but yeah, the kind we have are up off the ground enough that you can actually put stuff underneath them. So that's one of the big advantages. And they're pretty comfortable. Some of them are not comfortable. And we don't have a specific brand recommendation because, you know, these things change all the time. You, you buy a certain brand and then, you know, two years later they change the manufacturer or, or how they set up that, that particular model and it's not as comfortable. So you really just have to try them out in the stores. Exactly. Actually lay on them. A lot of these stores have them already set up. So we would suggest going and laying on them and see what what you think is comfortable. But I have to say that these cots made such a difference because as Matt said, we could store a lot of our extra stuff underneath them, our hiking boots, our backpacks and all that to get it out of the way. But also, we, we kind of made it look like a bedroom, or I guess maybe I should say I did. But we have a little um, folding camp table that we put in between the two cots like a nightstand and then of course you can put things on the your nightstand and then <laughs> we camp a lot with our friends John and Lolly and Lolly is very competitive and so we've kind of had this ongoing competition about whose tent could look better on the inside we don't <laughs> try very hard in that competition <laughs> well no Lolly always wins but things like we strung little battery operated Christmas you know little twinkling lights and we have a Pendleton camp blanket and lolly even went so far as to get she bought one of those indoor outdoor rugs that she put on the floor of her tent so i mean hers looks like one of those safari glamping tents yeah that that's a little overkill um <laughs> but it is nice i mean if you have a good campsite and you're going to be there for a few days yeah it'd be nice to have that whole setup we haven't gone that far we have not gone quite that far but stay tuned so tom you you're probably referring to not the little sleeping pads that we use but you're probably considering buying one of those bigger blow up air mattresses like people use in their spare bedrooms for guests and stuff yeah, and those are great. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I mean, you you have to make sure that you get one that's you know not going to puncture on you because that's a you know an another issue that sometimes happens. There is an advantage to those air mattresses, especially if you have kids, because you can fit a couple of smaller kids on on one of those as opposed to you know cot. You're really not going to get two kids on one cot. That's a good point. So what about what about blowing up those air mattresses? Because that's something I've never done. So what? So how does that work? Yeah, I think they're now a lot of them are packaged with a foot pump, and and those are great. We had when we had one, uh, I had a battery operated. It was took big old C batteries, and that that's good. And it also helps you deflate it, which is just as much of a hassle if you don't have help with that because you flip the pump in reverse and it sucks all the air out really quick. Uh, so yeah, you definitely want to look at the model, see if it comes with something to help you pump it up, either battery operated or foot operated. 
Once a long time ago, we had a lot of guests staying in our house. And so we had to use our air mattress. And I don't know what happened, but in the morning, it had deflated overnight. And in the morning, our poor guests were just literally sleeping on the floor because it was perfectly flat. <laughs> so I don't know if that's user error. I'm not pointing fingers. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think those, uh, I don't think they're designed really to be used a lot of times, right? I mean, I think sometimes they're they're used for emergencies. But anyway, uh, we love we love the cots, mm-hmm. uh, but you do have to when you go to buy them, definitely test them out. And you know, if you have four people in a tent, you you got to have a pretty big tent, right, uh, to fit four cots. And so maybe what you want to do is set up your tent either in your living room or in your backyard, and literally measure, you know. Get the dimensions of the cots you're interested in and see how many will fit. One thing you could do is get a cot for you and your wife and an air mattress for the boys. Maybe that would work. Right. Combo. Combo. Right. Uh, Anyway, Tom, it's great that you are setting off on this adventure with your family. I think you will be able to make a lot of fun memories with your boys as you guys camp throughout the parks. That's right. Okay. What's our next question, Karen? All right. Our next question comes from Daniel and Nora. Daniel wrote, hi, Karen and Matt, my eight-year-old daughter, Nora, and I have a tradition of listening to your podcast on the way to school. We love visiting national parks, and I love your podcast, but never expected my daughter to be so into it as well. That's awesome. (laughs) That that is awesome. Didn't know that eight-year-olds would be listening Uh, to us. I know. Clean it up a little bit, yes, Karen. Yes, yes. Hi, Nora. That, keep, keep that in mind as you're making your comments. Right. <laughs> so Nora wanted to ask a question for your next mailbag episode. Do you know of any other places that are trying to become national parks? P.S. I just heard the mailbag episode with the history of Hot Springs National Park. I love the History Channel. Can we please have more History Channel? The answer is yes, yes, yes. History Channel is going to send us a <laughs> cease and desist letter. We're going to have to delete all these episodes where we may. We're going to have to go in and edit every episode where we say History Channel and say History Lesson. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, we'd be in big, big trouble. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> All right, Karen, uh, we do have an answer here, yes. don't we? Nora, that's a really good question. Very interesting question. All right. Well, the first one that is probably the most likely next national park is Chiricahua National Monument in Arizona. We've been there. It is straight east of Tucson. I don't know, maybe an hour and 45 minutes or so. Yes. So this was introduced by Senator Mark Kelly, this resolution creating our nation's 64th National Park. So this has already passed the Senate and it's been moved into the House. The Department of the Interior supports the bill and is working to establish a tribal commission. Now, a formal vote by the House of Representatives is still needed to designate the unit. So we have been waiting because it seems like this has been at least a year or two in the works. So we keep waiting for an announcement, but so far it hasn't come. Right. All of these designations as national parks, if you look at the history of how they became national parks, it usually takes years and it's usually not the highest priority legislative item. So it usually gets attached to some bill that eventually gets passed. Right. We thought Chiricahua was amazing. I think we talked about this early on. We did an episode about some monumental national monuments, and Chiricahua was in that list because it has some great hiking and some beautiful landscapes. Yeah. So that's probably the next most likely national park, national park. Right. Now, another one that we've heard buzz about is Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area. And this is in both New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And we have never been to this particular park. I see on your notes here that this park gets over 4 million visitors a year. That's a lot of recreation going on. (laughs) That is. And some organizations like the Sierra Club are rallying behind this local effort to make this a national park. But there are other groups who oppose this change in designation due to concerns about traffic, parking, boundaries, funding, and hunting. It brings up the point that there are a lot of issues that arise when you turn a place into a national park. A lot of things to consider ahead of time. Right. And if this place is already very popular... It's going to become more popular, 
And so you you have to deal with these issues of all of these additional visitors going there, like you said, the traffic. And, you know, the Park Service is then responsible for putting together a plan and managing the resources. So it's not to be taken lightly to make a place a national park. It, it does change the place and it increases the amount of attention and resources it takes to, to manage the place in a responsible way. And that brings us to the last park I wanted to mention, and and this speaks to that point, Bandelier National Monument in New Mexico, which is another amazing national monument. Back in 2019, Senator Martin Heinrich introduced legislation to make Bandelier a national park and preserve. He wanted to split off some of the land as a preserve for hunting. So this was in 2019, and then it seemed to have stalled. I haven't heard anything about this since. So I did some research, and it turns out, you know, there are a lot of um, opinion pieces, a lot of articles written about should it or shouldn't it become a national park. And apparently here is the problem. Already, Bandelier has inadequate funding and facilities to serve the approximately 270,000 visitors who come to the park every year. So apparently, their infrastructure is crumbling. They don't have enough restrooms to serve the hundreds of busloads of people who come every summer. And the trail that most visitors use hasn't been resurfaced since 1972. And two of the restrooms up the canyon were closed by the 2011 floods and won't open again for this foreseeable future. So the question is, if you increase visitation to Bandelier by making it a national park, would there be funds available to upgrade all of these much-needed visitor services? Yeah, they they really need to do that because we've been there a couple of times. It's a beautiful place, uh, incredible ancient ruins to see. However... In its current state, it can't take an influx of a lot more visitors. It just can't. They don't even have enough bathrooms. So, again, it's not something to take lightly. I think it's national park quality, but they have to be ready for the visitation. Exactly. So, Nora, that was a great question. Um, In summary, (laughs) after all that, we think the most likely park to be our country's 64th national park would be Chiricahua in Arizona. There you go. Yeah. Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for tuning into our podcast. Yeah. And and that's the last question an eight-year-old will will ask. It's like, are you ready for a 15-minute answer? (laughs) A boring answer. (laughs) All right, let's move on. <laughs> All right, what, what what do you got in the mailbag, Karen? Okay, I love this question. This is from Brad in Evanston, Illinois, and he wrote, Dear Matt and Karen, my wife and I are taking our boys to Big Bend during spring break. They are six and eight years old, and this will be their first time hiking. And yes, we will go on some easy trails. But do we need to bring snake gators for them, or is that overkill? Yeah, I would say that that's probably overkill, but you have to make that decision for yourself. I don't want, you know, your kids getting bit by a snake and then we we told you you didn't need any protection. Generally, rattlesnakes, they can hear you coming. Mm -hmm. So this is what rangers have told us. And they can tell by the vibration you're creating that you're something too big to eat. So a snake's only going to bite you if, one, thinks it can eat you, or two, it needs to protect itself. And what we have found, we have hiked thousands of miles in deserts. If you stay on the trail and you're watching where you're walking, then it's highly unlikely you're going to run into a snake on the trail like all of a sudden. If it is in the middle of the trail, you're going to see it and you're going you're going to avoid it. But if you go off trail and start hiking through the vegetation, then all bets are off. I mean, snakes... They can coil up under the smallest plant and virtually disappear. And we've, we've seen this happen. You're just, you're not going to see them until it's too late. Right. So our advice would be to stay on the trail. And Brad, when you're hiking with your boys, have you be the first person, uh, then your boys, and then your wife bringing up the rear. And for several reasons, not just so that you can look at the trail for snakes, but also they suggest doing this when you're in Big Bend because there are mountain lions also. Um, and so you want to have just a little layer of protection for your boys with your with you on one end and your wife on the other. Right. Generally, the mountain lions are in the mountainous area of the park, and mountain lions will typically 
go after the smaller members of a group. And so this is why you don't want children trailing at all Mm -hmm. in a column of hikers, right? You don't want them to be the last. You don't want them to be the first because it's easier for a mountain lion to pick them off. You want them in the middle so that there are bigger humans around them. Now, I'm wondering, uh, Brad didn't say, but I'm wondering if he was asking this question because of, I know in one of the episodes we talked about the time in Guadalupe Mountains that you stepped on a rattlesnake on the trail. Right. And you know why that happened? Uh, because you were eating snacks and not paying attention. No, I, I, was, <laughs> I was not eating snacks. I was exhausted and I was daydreaming and looking in the distance and I wasn't looking where my feet were going. And I don't know if this snake was right in the middle of the trail and I stepped on it or my theory is he tried to scoot past me, Mm -hmm. that he wasn't actually there until the last second. Yeah, it was hard for the rest of us to see what happened because I probably was at least 10 yards behind you. Um, and all I saw literally was you dancing backwards. <laughs> like yeah, because like... <laughs> I was trying to, I had one foot on the snake and he was rattling and one foot off. And, I, and so the other foot, I'm trying to keep him from biting the, the loose foot. And then as soon as I take my foot off the snake, then he's completely free. And so I had to dance. I danced my way out of that. You did. You were very good at that, I I have to say. I did. I I don't know if if the snake uh, immediately went about three or four feet over. There was a cliff there and he just went to the side of the cliff or the edge of the cliff wall. And he coiled up and he was still uh, rattling, but I danced away. And it could be the dance that um, concerned him the most. (laughs) Well, That's it concerned like, the rest of us. That wasn't, we're not really sure what what this animal is, and I'm just going to just watch it for a minute to see if it stops its dancing. Right. We were all hoping for that, too. Yeah. So, yes, to your point, Matt, the snake coiled up under this little tiny scrubby bush, teeny tiny. And when the rest of us came up and and Matt explained what happened, we were all, you know, trying to peer into the bush from a safe distance to see this giant snake. You didn't believe me. You didn't believe me that there was a snake because he disappeared that quickly. Right, right. And I'm talking about a bush that's, this is like a one foot by one foot bush. This isn't like this huge bush that he disappeared in. And you guys thought I was making it up because you couldn't see the snake. And finally, John got down on all fours and crawled towards the bush. And I kept telling him, there is a snake in there. And sure enough, he gets very close to it and goes, yep, there is. Yeah. So that that kind of proves the point that you're not going to see him. And I have to say that ever since that, and that was, gosh, let me think, that was almost six years ago that incident happened. Now we do not take our eyes off the trail. When we're hiking in any desert area where there are rattlesnakes, I mean, that is my biggest fear. And I tell you what, my eyes are glued to the trail in front of me, just just watching. That's right. (laughs) Also, they make a noise. Sure. They don't want to get into a confrontation, and they use the rattle. We had this happen when we were on our horseback trip. We we would (laughs) ride past bushes, and we would hear the, the rattle of rattlesnakes. And it's just telling you, stay away. So you do have some warning, both visually and and by listening, to prevent an encounter with a snake. So you know if this if this is a peace of mind thing for you, then by all means buy snake gators for your boys. If you're going to worry about this to the point where you're not going to be able to enjoy the hikes, then you should absolutely do it. You're the dad, and your job is to protect your boys. So buy them if you feel like this is going to give you peace of mind. I think most people who go to Big Bend and hike do not take snake gators, and they're just fine. But again, you have to do what's best for you That's and right. your family. That's right. And there's nothing wrong with wearing them. I've seen adults wear them on trails and 
There's nothing shameful about taking extra precaution. If that makes you feel good, then do it. Absolutely. One more note, um, since this is your first time your boys have hiked, and I'm guessing the first time you've been to Big Bend, we would suggest that you get some hiking pants for your boys before you go. Now, wearing long pants is not going to protect from a snake bite, but it will protect their little legs from sunburn and from scratches and scrapes. It's a prickly environment out there. And, you know, kids will be kids and they want to climb rocks and things like that. So a good little pair of lightweight yet tough hiking pants that they can wear every day, I think would be a a great thing to buy. Yeah, I like that idea too. I, I know that people, particularly in the summertime or hot climates, they want to wear shorts. I now always wear long pants. If we're going in the desert, I still wear long pants. Right, right. So I hope that helps. You know, the other thing you could do, Brad, is you could also call the visitor center ahead of time, talk to a ranger, because they would have a better idea if there have ever been visitors bitten by rattlesnakes in the park and and get their advice as well. But it sounds like you're going to have a very fun adventure, and we hope you love Big Bend as much as we did. That's right. Okay. Do we have time for one more? We have time for one more. The last question comes from Heather in Des Moines, Iowa. She wrote, as we're traveling to the national parks, we always take our photo in front of the park entrance signs like you did. We've been to 27 parks so far, and we noticed how different all the park signs are. Do you have a favorite national park entrance sign? I think our favorite, I think you and I would agree on this, is the Sequoia National Park sign, the one that has... Is it Chief Sequoia? Yes. As mm-hmm. as the model of that sign? Yes. We love this sign. Uh, one of the reasons is because it's unlike any of the other signs. Now, if you haven't seen this one yet, it's made from this mammoth four foot by 10 foot slab of sequoia wood from a 2000 year old fallen sequoia tree. And it was carved back in 1935 by, I believe, someone from the CCC. Yeah, and they've uh, done a good job of preserving it. I think they've uh, fixed it up a couple of times in in, in that time period in in what, almost, uh, what, 85 years. I know that they've had to protect it against forest fires at least once uh, recently to make sure it doesn't get burnt. Yes, it's a very beloved sign, and it was intended to honor Chief Sequoia, who was a Cherokee scholar whose invention of the alphabet for his language brought advances in literacy. So that was the that was the reason for the sign. A lot of people, we have posted our photo of this sign before, and a lot of people who have been to Sequoia have missed it. And so if you want to see it, it's at the Ash Mountain entrance. And this is where you are coming into the park from the south. A couple of other ones that we like, the North Cascades National Park sign, that this is the one that's on, what, Highway 20? Yes, as you're uh, heading east. As you're heading east into the park. Yeah, that one was put in place just a few years ago. So it's in, in pretty good shape. Yeah, and it's another unique one because it's um, it's made up of huge boulders. And then they have, you know, the National Park sign lettering somehow they have fixed it to these boulders and then on the top of the boulders they created i'm going to call it fake snow maybe they just painted it white i don't know but it looks like snow on top of mountains is what it looks like (laughs) yeah so that so that's a nice one now at the other end of the spectrum when we were at kenai fjords national park by seward alaska that sign was not in great shape no it was distressing to see because as you know heather the the national park signs are what, you know, you enter the park and you see the sign and it's like the welcome wagon. And it was distressing to see the Kenai Fjords because it looked like it had bullet holes shot through it. There were chunks of it missing. The paint was peeling. It was kind of distressing to see that one. Yeah, they, they may have fixed it up since. Yes. That was what? 12 years ago. That was 12 years ago. So if any of you have been there since, um, let us know if they have refurbished that sign. I hope they have. And I would love to know that they have. Yeah, and I think the most interesting park sign story we have is when we went to Kobuk Valley in Alaska, and the Park Service knows that this is a thing. People love to take their picture by the sign, and we found in the visitor center in Bettles, Alaska, we talked to a ranger, and we told her what we were doing, and she's like, okay, well, you're going to need this then. And she pulls out this, I don't know, it was about maybe 18 inches by 36 inch 
plywood, really nice sign. She goes, here, take this with you on your plane ride out there so that when you're in the park, you hold this up. And I guess what happened was some visitors about 15 years ago saw this as a problem and they had a really nice sign made and they donated it to the park service. And so they have it at the visitor center in Bettles. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to take a float plane trip into Kobuk Valley uh, to see the park, you borrow that sign. And then when the float plane lands on the lake, you hold up the sign and have the pilot take your picture. Yeah. So that's probably one of the more unique ones. I think taking your photo in front of the park signs is a great tradition. It's so much fun to look back on. And when we started the Sparks journey, we visited our Washington National Parks first. And then I think maybe the fourth one was Cuyahoga Valley. And when we visited Cuyahoga Valley, we hadn't yet decided that we would take our picture in front of all the park signs. So we missed it. And then, you know, a few weeks later, we decided we should do that. And it was haunting us that we didn't have the Cuyahoga Valley park sign. (laughs) Right. And I don't know how long it was. It might, might have been like over a year later, we were visiting Mammoth Cave National Park. And even though it was at least a couple hours out of our way, we thought we got to go back up and just get to Cuyahoga Valley National Park so that we can take our picture in front of the sign. So we made a detour on our driving trip, got the picture of the sign, and so now now we're caught up. That's right. But anyway, uh, for those of you who don't want to take your picture in front of the park sign, it's fun just to get a photo of the sign itself because then, then you've got the date stamp on your, assuming you do it on your phone, you've got the date you were there, you've got a picture of the sign. And uh, I think when you go back years later and you look at your park photos, you will not regret having that Uh, having that picture of the sign. And as you pointed out, Heather, they're all different and they're all unique. And a lot of them use local materials to build the sign. So they kind of reflect what you're going to see in the park. Yeah. Fun tradition to do when you go to the parks. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today. We're currently working on an episode about Isle Royal National Park, the most remote national park in the lower 48. Yes, that's going to be a good one. But do you know what big day is coming up, Matt? <laughs> uh, no. W- what big day is coming up, Karen? Valentine's Day is coming up. And you know what's better than getting your sweetheart a portable camping toilet or a stuffed chipmunk rowing a canoe? Well, I do now. <laughs> yes, yes, I do. How about a shirt from Dirtlander.com? You can check out all the fun shirts on Dirtlander.com and choose the one that's perfect for your Valentine. Yes, and maybe get one for yourself and then you can have matching shirts while you're out in the parks like we do. That's right. You know, there's no limit to the number of shirts you can buy on Dirtlander. Oh, there's not. No, you're not limiting no, them. There's no limit. We took the limit off now that Christmas is over. Okay, good. And Karen, since you already have every shirt designed from Dirtlander, I'm going to have to think of something else to get you. (laughs) And I cannot wait to see what that is. (laughs) I'll give that some thinking (laughs) now that I know that Valentine's Day is coming. Again, didn't he just just roll around? Every year, Matt. Every year, February 14th.